This is Truth Encounter, and on today's program, we are going to go on scene to one of the largest gatherings in the Old Testament. The time was the Feast of Tabernacles. The place was Jerusalem. The leader was Solomon. Let's join our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurtson, for the Old Testament equivalent to a mass rally. One of the most exciting celebrations of the Feast of Tabernacles took place in 1 Kings chapter 8. King David, the father of Solomon, had spent his life battling his enemies and trying to talk to the Lord about building a tabernacle, and it never took place. Uh, King David gathered a lot of material. He went down to the lumber yards up in Lebanon, and he had the trees of Lebanon delivered to the city of Jerusalem. He went out in the stone quarries and cut massive blocks of stone right near the city of Jerusalem. But it was left to his son, his very name, Shalomon, means Shalom, the son of peace. It was left to this man who, instead of earning his kingdom on a bloody battlefield, really received what his father had done, and Solomon began his rule in a time of peace. As we open to 1 Kings chapter 8, it says, Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribe and the chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. And this is a time of great celebration. It's hard to catch the enthusiasm, the excitement. This would be the Super Bowl in the United States only multiplied a million times because now the temple of Solomon has been completed. The Lord God has finally chosen the one place there by the altar to establish his name. This beautiful temple has been completed. And we're gathering together for the dedication of this building. And part of the essence of that dedication ceremony was to bring the Ark of the Covenant that actually had inside the moral commands of God engraved by the finger of God. And those tablets were inside this chest. And we have the Levites, the priests that were ordained to carry the ark moving through the city of Jerusalem in a great procession. And then they bring the ark of the covenant towards its final resting place in the Holy of Holies. That's the scene. Now notice when this great temple dedication took place. It says it was at the time in verse 2. It was at the time of the festival. In the month of Ethanine, that doesn't really help us very much, but the seventh month, that does help us. Because it was in the seventh month that we celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So there's a great spirit of festivity. People all over the city of Jerusalem, as we learned the last time we were together, are camping out. They're living in these lean-tos, these booths that they've created. They've all cut down their branches, and they have some of them they have bundled together, and they've carried uh, these bundled branches with the palm branches, waving them in great processions. So all over the city of Jerusalem, there's great celebration. It says in verse 3 that when all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings. The priests and Levites carried them up. And King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. And so they initiate this great celebration, the Feast of Tabernacles, finding out what we learned, really acting out what we learned about in the book of Numbers. They began following through and offering all those sacrifices, even multiplying the requirements several fold as they have this great day of celebration. 
It says in verse 10, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Isn't that incredible? Can you catch some of the excitement? You can see these, these priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, Kings tells us that they, they laid their poles down as they put the Ark of the Covenant on its place of rest. The poles actually protruded in, and it says that they're still there till this day. And it was like the priests just had to get out of there very quickly. It was almost like trying to escape an incredible wind or an incredible power that descended upon the tabernacle. And you almost see these priests just almost running because of the awesome revelation of the power of God. And that's kind of the sense of the presence of God in the Old Testament. There's a, there's a tremendous transcendence and a tremendous omnipotence as these priests just have to get out of there as quickly as they can as the Shekinah glory comes upon now, can you imagine being gathered together with, with thousands upon thousands of people and, and you're watching this great procession and when they deposit the Ark of the Covenant there in the Holy of Holies, suddenly everyone's just kind of running to get away and then you see this incredible glow, just like the pillar of fire that guided the people through the wilderness. You know, you could really worship under those kind of conditions. I mean, this is what God's Old Testament people were able to experience firsthand. And sometimes I'm like some of our Christian writers, when you read some of these Old Testament stories, you say, man, I wish we could gather together on Sunday morning and right up here we could have the Shekinah glory come down and you know, actually see a pillar of fire and, and all that tremendous visible representation of the power of God. You can be hungry for that. Well, Solomon gets up in the midst of this manifestation as the great king of the people. It's a moving scene. He gets up before all the people And then he prostrates himself all the way down on his hands and knees, putting his hands out, and then he prays. In the book of 1 Kings chapter 8, we have one of the most most incredible prayers of the king. And just to give you a taste for it, it says in verse 14, while the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, so you have this scene there in verse 14, thousands upon thousands of Jews standing around the temple area. Their king comes forth in all of his regalia, and it says this. The king turned around and he blessed them, and then he said, Praise be to the Lord God of Israel with his own hand, who has fulfilled the promise with his own mouth to my father David. And Solomon proceeds to first of all give a blessing to his people. And then it says in verse 22, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel. He spread out his hands towards heaven, and later on it tells us at the end of the prayer that he rises from this prone position and he prays. Look how he prays. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love, in other words, your loyal kindness with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. So Solomon begins by praising God for his covenant loyalty, for his covenant faithfulness. Now, Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises that you made to him. You shall never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons are careful in all they do to walk before me as you have done. And now, O God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, to come true. 
Solomon begins by talking to the Lord and praising him for the fact that he kept his promise. But then he talks about a very specific promise. It's the promise of the Messiah. And Solomon talked to the Lord about the Davidic promise that there would not fail a male heir from the throne of King David. And then he begins to talk to the Lord very specifically about some of the needs. I want you to look at verse 33 just to give you an idea as we kind of summarize this prayer. Because I want to look at some of the other celebrations, but I want you to try to get this scene of this dedication feast of tabernacles when the temple was dedicated. Look at verse 33. When your people Israel have been defeated by enemies. In other words, when they go out to fight a war and they're beaten. Why did they get beaten? Because they had sinned against you. When they turn back to you and confess your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land that you gave to their fathers. Just think about what Solomon's praying. And I want you to see the reality of this. He's talking about people that will come to this temple where the presence of God has especially chosen to reveal itself. He's talking about a people that will come like mothers and wives that will come when their men out on the battlefield have been taken captive. And they're talking about people that will pour out their confession before the Lord. And they're going to be asking the Lord to forgive and to bring the people back. And he's saying that the Lord God in heaven and the Lord God that's revealing his presence at the temple is going to hear those kinds of prayers. And I want you to feel the reality. You know, this relationship with God for Solomon wasn't just some kind of a religious ritual that he went through or some kind of an obligation. A people that gathers together, like if if our nation was at war, And some of our sons were in concentration camps and prison camps. We would pray. We would pray. And I want you to see how Solomon connects in old Israel the defeat with disobedience to the Lord. Now, not all defeats come because of disobedience to the Lord in our relationship with the Lord. But I think it's very important to realize that some of them do. Sometimes we get in a mess. Sometimes we're defeated. Sometimes things are chaotic because we've wandered away, because we've disobeyed, because we haven't learned the principles that God wants us to learn, and we have turned away from that pathway of simple, childlike trust and obedience. But it's so good to know that Solomon is modeling for us that we can pray before our Lord. And we can ask him to forgive and we can go back to the beginning of this prayer where Solomon remembers our God is loyal to us. His love will be constant. And oh, how we need to learn to pray like that and to realize what an incredible opportunity we have to talk to the Lord in a time of great disaster and ask him to guide us and ask him to restore us. Look at verse 35. When the heavens are shut up, Solomon talks about another kind of prayer that will be prayed before the Lord in this temple. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. As we've been studying these festival feasts of Israel, we've learned that they are fundamentally harvest feasts and fertility feasts. 
and not worshiping the fertility goddesses, but in these three festivals, Israel gathered together before their fields were really planted or right as they began to plant them. Then they gathered together as the harvest began to come in and then they gathered together again after all the harvest had been brought in and at every single feast they are confessing we are a totally dependent people. And in this part of Solomon's prayer, he prays about this. He prays about water. You see, we take it for granted in our culture that any one of us can go anytime and we can go to a spigot, turn it on, and we go. Boy, that's refreshing. This is the beverage that really refreshes. You know, not those ice-cold, foamy kind of things. This is what you really, really need. And if you ever go very long without this stuff, you'll really understand how precious this gets. Now Solomon is saying that this is connected with the Lord God of heaven. We've learned in our own country just how devastating dryness can be. When you combine a nation, like where I was raised, this was a very serious thing. Because very much like Southern California, only with a lot more tinderboxes to explode... Because where I was raised, there's just acre upon acres of trees. But I remember what it was like to pray in the summertime for rain. Because the entire forest of the Adirondacks was like a gasoline can getting ready to explode. And we've seen what can happen when those kind of dry conditions come upon the land. Now we need to be very careful. Southern California hasn't sinned any worse than we have sinned in Texas. And certainly not any worse than where I just was a few days ago up in New York State, okay? We need to be very careful. The Lord Jesus told us that we need to be careful not to point our finger when we're not experiencing a disaster. For example, when the tower doesn't fall on us, we need to be very careful not to point our finger at the ones that it fell on. In fact, the Lord Jesus said... The tower should have fallen on all of you because you've all sinned and you've all disobeyed the Lord. So we all need to be cautious about that. But I want you to see something which is a very biblical idea. The Bible's saying that rain and the greenness of the land and the fertility of fields is not just the engineering of Texas A&M. And it's not just the latest farming techniques, and it's not just the latest fertilizers, and it's not just the, the latest news from the farmer's almanac. It's saying that it's ultimately the gift of this water ultimately comes from the Lord God of heaven. In fact, the book of Proverbs tells us that by wisdom, the Lord causes the rain to fall down and even the dew of heaven to rise up in the early morning, which as well, as well as the rain, brings refreshment to our ground and to our crops. The Lord says that as we turn away from him, And as we become immoral, and as we turn away from that Ark of the Covenant that the Lord gave his Old Testament people, in other words, as our hearts become like stone, and we turn away from the Ten Commandments, then the rain can be withheld. In a modern scientific world, it's very easy to forget that. Only now we're moving into the postmodern world, and there's a whole lot of people that when it becomes really dry, they start beating on their tom-toms, and they start doing their rain dances, and we start going right back into animism and primitive religions. We as the people of God need to return to the Word of God. Notice how Solomon prayed, and teach them your word. And as they obey your word, that again the times of blessing, the times of refreshing living water can come. So Solomon, I want you to see how this great king, this political ruler, brought his people 
before the Lord God of heaven. You can go through, I've given you just two examples of how he prayed after a defeat in war and how he pictured a scene of praying after a parching devastation of their crops. Well, Solomon has several other specific instances when they would cry out to God. And in every single one of them, he remembers how the Lord will be covenantly faithful and he will be loyal and he will bring forgiveness. But as, and so we, this is probably the high point of Solomon's entire life. Thousands upon thousands of Israelites watching their great king bless them in the name of Yahweh and then prostrating himself and praying before all of them in one of the most beautiful, powerful prayers of all the Bible. But you know what strikes me about Solomon's life? What do you know about Solomon's life? The book goes on and tells us that when he became middle-aged and prosperous, that he began to rely upon intrigue and political intrigue. And like Henry VIII, he tried to, and like a lot of the kings of England, he tries to establish treaties with all the nations around them, around him. And he did it by marrying several women that did not know the Lord God. The whole second part of King Solomon's reign is not a great king down totally prostrate before the Lord, totally worshiping the Lord, bringing the needs of his nation before the Lord. Instead, we have a profligate, materialist, immoral playboy that is offering gifts to idols. He even sacrificed some of his own children. Isn't that incredible? That a man can have a moment in his life where he is at this high point of godliness and representing his people before God, but then he turns away. And he becomes a man that was very instrumental in plunging his entire people into the worship of idols. So much so that Solomon laid the seeds that caused this prayer about being taken captive because you're defeated. Solomon, the man who prayed that, laid the very seeds that eventually led to the destruction of the northern kingdom and then it led to the destruction of the southern kingdom. In 586, Nebuchadnezzar came down, destroyed this temple, destroyed this worship, destroyed this people, and took the people 500 miles across the Fertile Crescent into what was called the Babylonian captivity. But what did Solomon pray first? The Lord God is a covenant, loyal, loving God. And so he let the people be punished, let them live away from their land for 70 years, and then the Lord brought them back. And you all remember this story? If you don't, Zerubbabel was the prince of Judah that brought the people back. And then Nehemiah was able to come back and rebuild the city and rebuild the walls. And Ezra came back to lead the people again in worshiping the Lord and in celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's the second feast I want you to look at today. Turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8 is a Feast of Tabernacles in which Solomon dedicates his temple. Nehemiah chapter 8 is another example of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. It says, when the seventh month came, notice seventh month again, and the Israelites had settled in their town, so they built their homes, they're settling back in the promised land, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, this would be the, would, would be the day of trumpets, and it would be a one-day celebration, and the people invite Ezra the priest to bring out the law before the assembly, which was made up of the men and women, notice men and women, 
and all who were able to understand. So a lot of little children were there. It says, and he read it aloud from daybreak till noon. If you think I read the Bible a long time, and you think I speak a long time, can you imagine getting together? I think the sun came up, I looked at about 6.30 or so this morning. So we're talking about reading for about five and a half hours straight. So that's what they did at this festival. It says, he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square in the presence of the men, women, and all the others who were able to understand. And notice it says, all the people listened attentively to the book. And then the next few verses show us how they did that. They first of all built like a great big wooden platform. This was the beginning of the Billy Graham Crusades. Only these are a little bit different crusades, but that's the beginning. It's kind of like a Garth Brooks concert. They build a great big platform. Ezra gets up on the platform, and the people are shouting, bring out the law. As they bring out the law, Ezra begins by giving a blessing to the people, like we talked about last time we were together. He blessed the people, and then he unrolled the scroll. Your translation says they opened the books. Books weren't created for many years after this. So it was scrolls that were opened up. So he unrolls these parchments, and when he unrolled the parchments, everybody stood up. And what it described in this context is that Ezra would read a little bit, and throughout the people, throughout the people, there were all these Levites. And I believe that that, that what Nehemiah chapter 8 is picturing for us is that Ezra would read maybe a few paragraphs, maybe a chapter, what would be equivalent to us to a chapter, and then they would all get in little huddle groups with their individual Levite, and he would explain, they would discuss it. And they would talk about the meaning, and they would be able to ask questions. And then Ezra would read a little bit more, and then in all these little pockets, they would once again explain it. They did this for five and a half hours straight, or six hours straight. When they were done, you know what was happening? Everybody was crying. You see, as they read, probably the book of Deuteronomy, a lot of the book of Deuteronomy that we've been reading, as they were reading that, the people realized, man, we've been disobeying the Lord. We haven't been obeying what the Lord wants us to do. And the Holy Spirit was moving the people to become really upset because they were disobeying the Lord. And and so the whole nation was crying. So at 12 o'clock, Nehemiah and Ezra look over this nation and their hearts are broken in crying and asking the Lord for forgiveness. But you know, an incredible thing happened. Ezra told the people, you need to stop crying because the Lord is, is faithful to you. He loves you. And he wants you, instead of crying, he's seen your broken heart. He's seen your tears. Now he wants you to accept his forgiveness and he wants you to go out and rejoice. And Ezra says, okay, we've read the Bible long enough. Now we need to go out and we need to rejoice. We need to party. I want you to go out and get some really good food. I want you to get some really good drink. I want you to get in all of your festival booths all around the city. And it says that they celebrated a festival of tabernacles like they hadn't celebrated way back to the time of Judges. You see, what happened is that after they read the word of God that day, they celebrated this one day. In the chapter, it describes how all the leaders of Israel got together and studied the law with Ezra. Near the end of the chapter, evidently they came to Deuteronomy 16, like we've been studying, and they read about the need to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So the leaders said, hey, we've got a great idea. Let's obey the law. They sent news throughout all of the nation, and everybody came back. At the designated time period, 
and they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles for eight days according to the law of Moses like it had never been celebrated before. What I want you to see in this passage is this is a great passage for you to study. It'll explain a lot of what we do. Almost every single time when we gather together, somebody opens this book, we read a little bit, and then we explain it. We try to help you to understand what it's saying, and then we want to celebrate because following this pattern as we hear the Word of God and we're convicted in our hearts and we receive the Lord's forgiveness and we're renewed in our relationship together, then we can party and we can celebrate and we can have a good time. And unbelievers should be attracted to that joy and celebration of forgiveness that we have.